Hey, Zach, how are you? I'm great. It's um, a very good time to talk about all these new advances, advances in resuscitation science. And that's Dimitri Yiannopoulos from the University of Minnesota. And you're about to hear survivorship from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that you never thought possible. So with that, let's get it started. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. 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 This is ED ECMO. So Dimitri, ah, so glad to have you on the show today. This is a treat. This is Dimitri Yiannopoulos out of the University of Minnesota. He has been for a long time uh, in the forefront of resuscitation. And now he is at the forefront of ECMO as well. Dimitri, what is going on out there in Minneapolis? Yes, so uh, first of all, um, the, the process has been in the making for a while. As you probably know, I'm an interventional cardiologist and I direct the Minnesota Resuscitation Consortium which is a consortium of uh, the EMS directors in the Twin Cities and um, all the ambulance services and fire uh, departments in the state of Minnesota. And um, the idea behind that was to improve uh, survival in our state from cardiac arrest. We were able to effectively uh, be the first large metro area that came to a consensus about how we are going to be treating people with shockable rhythms. And we started in 2012, um, in November of 2012, where we basically implemented a process where everybody who has been resuscitated from a circle rhythm would have to go to the cath lab within two to four hours without the need to have an ST elevation on the EKG. And that was not an easy task because the standard of care was not that and we had to buy in from all the individual cardiology groups in town and effectively after a lot of negotiations and a lot of uh, education they all agreed to do that so over the last five years we've been doing that and we showed that people with resuscitated VFVT they have a very high prevalence of coronary artery disease that led to some publications in conjunction with other groups from Paris and uh, European groups predominantly, and also with a group from Cal Kern uh, that has done something similar in different places in the country. Um, and what we basically found was that if people go to the cath lab, they, tend, they seem to do better than if they don't go to the cath lab. But as all these cohorts, even if we, have th- we had 400 patients in our cohort, um, they cannot exclude biases for selection. So as of... Um, November of last year, 2016, we basically have this first phase three randomized trial in the United States called the ACCESS trial, which randomized patients resuscitated from ventricular fibrillation that do not have ST elevation to either go to the cath lab immediately or go to the ICU and call for consult or the standard of care. So we randomize people in the two standards of care. And the hope is that um, after 800 patients, we will inform how cardiologists should treat this population. So that is the bug how we ended up with the refractory VF population protocols. And the refractory VF protocols was always my kind of uh, passion because I thought that 
a lot of these people were left for dead without giving them the chance that they deserved. And in 2015, November, two ambulance services in the, in the Twin Cities, North Memorial and uh, the St. Paul Fire, that I've been working with for a long time, they agreed to change their ACLS protocol. And we decided to take people with VF because before we started the protocol, I had the ability to take uh, 15 patients with ongoing CPR with VF to the cath lab, and I found out the majority of them had coronary artery disease, severe coronary artery disease, much more significant disease than people with resuscitated VF. And that intrigued me because I thought that the reason we cannot bring these people back, that they have the same characteristics as the rest, is that the disease is so severe that it's impossible for us to to provide ATP, restoration to the heart with CPR, to bring the hearts back. So obviously with 12 people, I could not make conclusions. But um, those people effectively were left for dead. The protocols were 45 minutes of CPR, and if somebody doesn't have ROSC, they'll be left for dead in the field, or sometimes they would take them to the ED where the DDAC will just stop the Lucas and say goodbye. So it was not a difficult thing to start. It required a lot of political maneuvering, um, predominantly to persuade the hospitals that were bypassed that these are people that would never take other way. So that was that was something that uh, was difficult to do, but it was done within about three, four months. And subsequently, since November of 2016, today we have 18 months of operations. We have done about 92 cases, uh, only 10 that were non-VF patients, so 82 VF patients. And our overall survival rate has been stable to about 45%. Okay, so let's recap what Dimitri just said. He started off with an interest in VF. He found out that, hey, you know, patients that go to the cath lab after their arrest tend to do better. Whether this is related to selection bias or not, it's not clear. But that interest then peaked into him going out and saying, what about these patients that don't come back in the field? And he found, at least anecdotally in 15 patients, that they had much more severe coronary disease. So, He now has taken these patients and instead of doing the usual three shocks and stay on the scene until they pronounce them, he's now having them load and go. Three shocks, take him to his hospital, bypass the ER, go directly to the cath lab where Dimitri puts them on ECMO. And now in 18 months, Dimitri has had 92 patients, 45% neurologically intact survivorship. 45%. That is amazing. So that is the the overall overarching kind of theme of this. The idea, though, is, uh, Zach, that you can, we struggled of who we're going to bring in. How do we bring them in? And when is the best time to bring them in? And I think we were also kind of lucky because the first thing that we kind of uh, thought of turned out to be a very critical time point. So we decided to basically take people after three unsuccessful shocks from uh, EMS. So if the EMS arrives and the patient um, is in VF or has been in VF and eventually requires three shocks that are unsuccessful to terminate the metrical fibrillation, they automatically, all of the defibrillators in Twin Cities had a central phone number that they would call, and that would be ringing to my phone. And eventually, 
I would ask them a couple of questions if they seem to be within the age limit and if they were not bleeding, they were not traumatic, and if they were not uh, residents of nursing homes. These are the two, three things I was asking. And if the answer to those things is satisfactory, I would tell them to mobilize them and bring them to the hospital where we were waiting into the cath lab. So the criteria was were pretty, I would say, loose. We didn't ask a lot of questions uh, because we realized that the time was the most important factor for these patients. And the ability to get detailed information was really, really, you know, not easy to achieve. And the other thing I was, I never asked if somebody was witnessed or not. It's what I found out was very difficult in the middle of people doing CPR, the paramedics would tell you, was it truly witnessed or not? Somebody was there. You know, it was a very difficult and unreliable uh, question to be answered. So I basically, I take everybody who has first recorded rhythm with BFVT and they're 18 to 75 and that's it. Yes, that's a very interesting part of your paper, Dimitri is that we're all trying to figure out, you know, what is the right patient to bring? What is the right patient to include? And interestingly enough, you did not have as one of your inclusion criteria bystander CPR or witnessed arrest. One of the reasons for that is you never have a clear idea by the time frame that you have to operate that if that is true or not. So you just... Um, you just assume that you have to treat all these people and uh, subsequently you can find the associations. There is no doubt about the fact that if somebody didn't have bystander CPR, they tend to do worse. Or if they are witnessed for a while. I had a patient uh, two days ago at four o'clock in the morning that they heard him gasping, but it was unknown for how long he came down or was down for. And they, the family did not even do bystander CPR. So by the time they arrived there, it brought the heart back, but the brain was swollen immediately. So it's one of those things that they are important for the outcomes, but I don't think that any system currently with the, the ways of communications as they are will be able to decipher that in a timely fashion that also allows early application of ECLS. Yeah, so what I'm hearing through all this is this is, really like an iterative process for you, that you as an individual had an interest in VF, you got more involved, and stepwise, through a stepwise process, you actually turned this into this mega ECMO machine. You know, I, what I think is very important is to realize that this is not a program that one individual, one subspecialty can put in place. It's a program that requires the one champion to take care of all of us, there is no doubt about it, but requires the cooperation and the collaboration with all the other elements that can make that possible. And you start from the pre-hospital care where people need to be trained to identify these people and call quickly, and they have to, depends so far out you want to go, they have to mobilize early. Because if they don't mobilize early and they start arriving 90 minutes to two hours afterwards, the chances are that the program is going to be unsuccessful. You need a decent, at least 30 to 40% survival rate to justify the cost and the infrastructure um, in your institution, right? So for us, it was important to train people well, uh, and we actually have, you know, regular intervals that we train them twice a year. 
um, with the idea to remind them the process and underscore the importance of good perfusion and early mobilization. And then the other thing is find a way in the hostel that everything is centralized. You don't want many calls until the point that everybody knows that they need to provide ECMO and they all be available. So for the way we did it, everybody called me and I called the central line that I notified the emergency department and the cath lab and perfusionist to come to the cath lab. But I was wanted to make sure that I know because I, you know whoever is going to put the ECMO in your case could be ED, they need to be re- aware of the patient arriving as fast as possible to be ready and waiting for him or her. Many times it's impossible in the middle of the night, but at least everybody has to go as fast as possible. So expediting that process, so on average our ECMO was placed and patients were on pump about 58 to 62 minutes from their 911 call. And we have people as low as 40 and as high as 80, but after 75 minutes of CPR, um, the perfusion state of most of the patients is so poor that they do not meet the criteria to put them on pump. Okay, so this is one of the age-long questions, is how should we set this up? And in your facility, it's going straight to the cath lab. Now, this has some delays, meaning you guys have to come in from home if it's the middle of the night. Uh, You have to get all the people mobilized, and obviously the faster you can get them there, the better. You are having times to the cath lab of right around 60 minutes. But one of the most amazing things with all of this is the time once they get to the cath lab until you put them on ECMO, and that is six minutes. Six minutes from the time they hit that door to the time you have them on pump. That is amazing. Is that correct? That's correct. And it has been uh, the case now, the first 18 cases that we published, and now there's another publication coming out soon. Um, that we have uh, 62 cases reporting for one-year outcomes, and the average time is six minutes, and they have um, standard deviation of plus minus half minute. Okay, so much to talk about here, but I got to ask you, like, how in the world are you getting it done in six minutes? Yes, so I think the critical aspects of that is, um, one, that the, you have to have a pump which is primed and always available because you cannot have time to prime it. Uh, the pumps are always in the cath lab ready for us to go. Uh, the second is that the people that place the ECMO cannulas are very um, experienced operators in interventional cardiology with a lot of experience in large-bore catheter sensors due to the tower experience. So myself and other two colleagues of mine, uh, Dr. Avindra, who is the cath lab director, and Jason Bartos, who is my fellow in starting to be actually a faculty this has been doing all the cases of cannulations. The idea was that at least the first step of cannulation is the most critical for the success of ECMO. Uh, dissections or bleeding around the femoral arteries would be lethal in any of these situations, well, lethal. They will not be successful cannulations, and uh, they cause a lot of troubles afterwards. In one of the obsessions of mine was that I wanted to limit vascular complications in this population because I knew that they are so sick that any other additional um, condition, iatrogenic interference with their health, would take a toll. So we were able to do that by, obviously, a lot of experience, 
but also training the cath lab, the techs and the nurses to have one position. We restructure the cath lab in a way that is similar to your trauma bay in the emergency department, and everybody sits in one spot. They know what they need to do, and we did mock runs and education in all the cath lab uh, faculty and members in order to understand that this is what we need to do. The goal is not for everything to be set up. We don't care if they are ventilated or not. They have a bag. The goal is to be on ECMO. And the faster on ECMO, then you can put all the other stuff on subsequently. We don't defibrillate, uh, you know, for six, seven minutes. It's ongoing CPR. We don't even think about it. And they, you have to think about what are the chances of successful defibrillation? Somebody's going for CPR for 60 minutes. He has never, you know, been defibrillated. Uh, so it's there's no point of doing uh, your job as usual, but you have to focus on perfusing. So the critical steps were training, 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 experience. So few operators with high volume that they can actually do things very quickly and know. And then train the cath lab uh, personnel to be similar to a trauma um, response team. Um, and I think that was the first thing in the cath lab that was difficult to implement because people were not used to that. But uh, once you see it and you realize that it's very much doable, and uh, I think it leads to very good results. Okay, several pearls there. I mean, certainly the idea that you talked about, like this trauma resuscitation team, it's kind of uh, interesting for me to think of the cath lab as not being like that. But, uh, but yeah, so organization of your resuscitation is very important. The second thing, which, which becomes a little touchy when we're talking about different specialties, is just the l level of experience. And myself as an emergency physician, like I am never going to have the experience like you do, Dimitri, in the cath lab. That being said, probably worldwide cardiologists are not going to be running the ECMO machines. And so therefore, we need to focus on experience. We need to focus on developing these endovascular skills so that we can be as good as possible at putting in these lines and limiting the complications associated with it. Yes. And I, I would like to basically make a point here. There is a, this group from Paris, personal friends, George Sideris and Sebastian Voiku, that we published papers together, has visited uh, my lab. They've been doing ECMO for about seven years in Paris uh, there in the hospital. And the average time for an invasive cardiologist to put things in was about 20 minutes. And they were feeling very good about it. And then when they came and visited for two months here, and we were doing experiments and also coming with me in the calls, they saw the structure and the way we do it here, and they went back home, and they implemented the changes, and they went from 18 to 20 minutes down to 8, and now they're published, trying to publish this paper. So that is not to say that uh, we are the fastest or the best. It just says that if, as everything that we do in medicine, once you have been thinking about something intensely and you put a lot of um, dense resources into it, you end up doing things much better and much faster. And, and in emergency situations, faster is always best because every minute counts in these patients. And the other thing that's very important in this is that it's teachable. It's something that you can see and be trained to do. It's not magic. It's not uh, that anyone has some amazing skills that one can do, but it means that somebody has thought about something a lot and has found ways to basically realize what things matter and what things don't matter. And that's the bottom line. Ah, really good points there. So 
yeah, I mean, like, the guy has been down for 60 minutes. He's been shocked a ton of times. Giving him another round of defibrillation is not what he needs. He needs catheters and artificial perfusion. And so anything that delays that is problematic. Certainly continuing chest compressions and perfusion to the brain as best as possible is advantageous. But like you said, like get it done. Right. Because at the point that they arrive to you, either the AD or to us in the cath lab, you know, the regular stuff hasn't worked. Now, that doesn't mean that what we do prior to the arrival to us does, makes a humongous difference. It does make a big difference. And we need to find ways to improve that part. Because once the people, um, what we train people to do CPR with and how we train to do CPR is focusing on these first five, 10 minutes. And we have underestimated the effect of hypoventilation that is very, very common these days. And as time goes by, hypoxia is the most important predictor of outcomes for cerebral function. And a lot of these people truly are hypoxemic on arrival and hypercapnic. And that tells you that either the respiratory, the ventilatory techniques are inefficient or perfusion is getting so bad that the lungs don't respond very well. And they have multiple reasons to be hyperventilated, or the gas exchange is bad. They aspirate, they have pulmonary vasoconstriction because of hypoxia and hypercapnia that makes CPR efficiency even worse. They have a lot of trauma with contusions and, you know, potentially hemorrhage in the, the lungs. And uh, all of these things are exacerbated if you ventilate very infrequently. And if you don't, if you ventilate the time that the Lucas goes down during compression, you might feel good that you ventilated, but then nothing really went to the lungs because you have two high pressures staring each other and, you know, the, the stronger is going to win and the Lucas is not going to back down. <laughs> so what, what happens is we start to realize as we do these things, things that we can do to improve the care up until the delivery to a patient to an ECMO center. And so this is the new frontier. I think that if you look at what we've done in the last year and a half, there are two things that are incredible. One is that all acute injury in the heart is reversible. Most of these people have no heart function for two, three days, but two weeks later, they leave and go home and the injection fraction is 40, 45%. And that is consistent. Um, the first 18 patients, up to 70 patients that we've done, um, and nothing has changed. The heart will come back. They have severe, tremendous coronary artery disease. The burden of it is surreal, actually, when you see them. See how they were walking around before. And despite that, we fixed it, the heart function improved. So that is one. The second is that even the brain is recoverable in many cases, especially if the CPR quality was good and they arrived within one hour from the arrest. Um, but who would have believed that these brains can wake up? The other thing that's very important is you have to wait. Most of these people never wake up within a week. You might have signs of some neurological recovery, but we don't extubate people earlier than seven days. There is no way you can see recovery of the brain after such a massive insult within the three days or earlier. A lot of people extubate or pull the plug earlier than three days. So you have to wait. You have to have somebody who's willing to stand up and say, you wait, because we do not know. Now we know, but when we did it, we didn't know. 
So having the ability to wait to see how the body will recover its injuries is very similar to what trauma patients go through, right? So people were were considered to be dead in these circumstances, but now we have shown that they're not dead. I mean, I don't know what the mortality rate of a significant um, car crash is when you have multiple injuries, but I, I bet it's the same, you know, 89%. But if you treat them well, they probably will survive half of them. So well, you probably know that much better than I do, but this is the same principles. It's a multi-organ failure, multi-organ injury that takes time to heal, and it's a lot of support. All right, yeah. I mean, this this nihilism that's associated with cardiac arrest is so pervasive. And unlike, Dimitri, where you have basically control over what happens to the patients in the CCU as you are managing them. Now, oftentimes, the rest of us are admitting these patients to physicians that maybe don't have the same perspective, that, that didn't have the same vested interest in this patient down in the ER or in the cath lab. Uh, and so I completely agree. We have to give these patients enough time to come back, not only from a cardiovas- cardiovascular standpoint, but from a neurologic standpoint. All right, well, I have a couple of other snippets here with uh, Dimitri, and one of the first things I was asking him about was chest compressions and mucus of lucus. Obviously, it's been controversial in the literature as far as the efficacy of these mechanical chest compression devices. We really like them, and we really like them for ECMO. And so here's kind of an, uh, a, gl- a glimpse into how Dimitri feels about this. You can never really get the stability that you need to advance these cutters and the needles easily. Like it, I mean, you can do it, but it's much more challenging, technically. And then I realized, when I was doing that, I realized how inefficient, random, uh, the chest compressions by humans are. It's kind of ridiculous, you know? It was like, the rate was, the, the force, the rate was going boom, 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 boom. You know, it was like crazy, chaotic rhythm. And for the cannulations and big wires and dilations to happen, you need some predictability in the motion of the patient. You know, you're doing things like uh, you're putting a 25 French in a van and 17 artery, you know, and if the patient is like moving like crazy, it's just a very scary feeling and uncomfortable. <laughs> so I think that is the limitation also about all this. It's uh, the practicality of it, you know. All right, chest compressions, use the Lucas. I agree. How about these patients that uh, get ROSC, these arrests that you get brought to you, and before you get them on ECMO, I mean, do you put cannulas in? Do you start them on the machine? What's going on? Is First of all, these patients, most of the time, even if they have ROSC, they will crash after two, three hours, and there's nothing you can do with current medications. If you don't put them on ECMO, they die because the heart stops. Initially, it comes back, and all this adrenaline rush comes in. You know, they have for two hours maybe a little pulsatility, and then they start vasodilating, and the pressures drop, and the heart with hypothermia starts to bug out, and it's like the end of it. And we've seen it. And initially, we didn't used to put ECMO on these patients, and they will call me in the middle of the night, they're crashing, I went back and put ECMO. So now, if they have CPR for 45 minutes, they get ECMO, baby. That's it. And then in two days, you take it out. All right, so let's wrap this up. Dimitri Yiannopoulos, University of Minnesota. Amazing outcomes without a hospital cardiac arrest. 45% survival now over an 18th month period of time where he's had over 90 cases. That's a lot of uh, ECMO. So maybe some take-homes from today is Dimitri likes the Lucas. 
He likes it because it allows him to have a more steady chest compressions. He's getting these patients on very quickly, six minutes. And this really speaks to the idea that, hey, experience matters in these things and that we can learn to do this better and we can learn to minimize complications. And then finally, just the whole idea of integrating the whole process, controlling your EMS to take you the exact right patients that you need, and then on the post-ECMO side, managing the patients up in the ICU, giving them enough time to not only come back from a cardiovascular standpoint, but also from a neurologic standpoint. These are critical for successful programs. Thank you, Dimitri Yiannopoulos. I hope you the best, and let me know if you need anything else.